But if you're joining us online, good morning. We're so grateful that you're here. And thank you for coming out in spite of the weather. Uh, ben told me there's a storm coming in at 1030, and that's why we raised the windows, just in case we lose power. And I was like, don't worry, I can shout. We're fine. We're just going to keep going. So just be prepared. So if you have been with us at any point over the last six months, then you know that we've been moving through a series that we've called The With God Life. We're on a trek through the biblical narrative, particularly the Old Testament right now, looking at the overarching story of how the Lord has been at work in human history, reconciling us, bringing us back into relationship with himself. So we started with Abraham and how the Lord promised to make him into a great nation that would bless all the other nations of the earth. We followed the story of Israel and Egypt and how Lord, the Lord raised up his servant Moses to lead the people into freedom. And then we watched how Israel continually grumbled and rebelled against God as he led them through the wilderness into the promised land. And we actually just wrapped up our journey through the judges, which really just served as a cyclical reminder of just how off the rails the story has, has become. Now, as we start the book of Samuel, I want to give you a fair warning. Um, the situation does not improve for the people of Israel. The story has been off the rails literally since the third chapter of the Bible, and it's not going to write itself anytime soon. But that's the beauty of this story. That's the beauty of the Bible. This whole biblical narrative is the overarching story of how God is at work in spite of, and often using, human brokenness. But there's a shift that happens in the book of Samuel. Samuel becomes a hinge in the story. The further we move along in our Bibles, our trajectory of redemption is becoming more and more narrow because we know we're headed in a very specific direction. We know we're headed to a very specific person, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, we still have quite a ways to go before we get there, but Samuel is going to narrow the focus that much more for us. He's going to give us some clues. Who are we looking for? What are we looking for? So moving forward, we're going to find out some of the answers to those questions. But there's an important theme that Samuel picks up, and that's what we're going to talk about today, because this theme is something that has been present throughout their narrative so far, and it's only going to become much more clear as we keep moving. By the time we get to the events of 1 Samuel 1, we are roughly 400 years after the exodus from Egypt. 400 years of the people of Israel living in their own land where they've been set apart as a nation whose sole purpose is to point other nations to the Lord. Have they been doing a good job? Have, have they been doing a good job? <laughs> no. No, the answer is no. By the time we get to 1 Samuel 1, we have seen years of internal anarchy there are external enemies. There's no centralized government. There has not been any kind of centralized leadership since Moses and Joshua. Judges were localized. They weren't necessarily judging or delivering Israel as a whole. So by the time we get to 1 Samuel 1, Israel is just a bunch of tribes that are barely hanging on. They have forgotten themselves, they have forgotten the Lord, and the situation left over from the book of Judges has left the picture pretty dim. Samuel 
is going to change that. The Lord, through Samuel, is going to change that. At least in such a way that it nudges the story along in the right direction. Because we're moving toward kingship. It's not a secret that there's going to be a king in Israel. There have been allusions to kingship all over the text. Genesis 17, Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 28. Kingship is coming. And through Samuel, we see the Lord make kings and we see him break kings. But more importantly, through Samuel, the whole narrative that follows is going to show that the Lord is king. So let this message be an intro not only to Samuel, but also the next phase of the biblical story, the next movement of the biblical story. So to get started, turn with me to 1 Samuel 1, because we don't get Samuel without a woman named Hannah first. So 1 Samuel 1, verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Pay attention because people are named for a reason. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So we learned, some several, we learned several important things about Hannah here from this passage. She is Elkanah's first wife, and he loves her. There is a rivalry between Hannah and the second wife, Penina, and the rivalry could potentially exist because Hannah, being the first wife, um, because she could have no children, he likely married Penina so that he could have children through her. So there's a difference in how he feels about his wife, and the text tells us that. He loves Hannah. Hannah has no children. And not only does Hannah have no children, it's the Lord who has closed her womb. It's been this way for years and nothing has changed. Let's pick this up in verse 9. So after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So what do we see Hannah do in the midst of her distress? She is deeply distressed and she goes to the temple, the tabernacle, because that's where the Lord is. So Hannah, in her distress, takes her case to the Lord. So what happens next? The text tells us that she prays to the Lord and she weeps bitterly. She's praying from deep within her heart. She's groaning inwardly. Her, her lips are moving and there's no sound that comes out. And so Eli, the priest, looks at her and his assumption, instead of a woman who's deep in grief and praying to the Lord, is that she's drunk, which that's what you want from your priests. She poured out her soul to the Lord in anxiety and great vexation. That's what the text tells us. She makes a vow to the Lord. She says, if you give me a son, I will give him back to your service. 
Hannah went to the temple because there was nowhere else for her to go. Pay attention to this because we've been told several important things. Hannah, instead of engaging in petty, jealous rivalry with Penina, instead of turning to the comforts of her husband, took her burdens to the Lord. Even though the text tells us it was the Lord who closed her womb. Why? Why does she do this? Because she recognized that the Lord is the only one who is able to do a thing about her situation. Her bitter weeping, her anxiety and vexation, the secrets of her soul. Her state of distress was such that she could not even speak them out loud. So here's a question for you. Who or what do you turn to when the burdens of your soul, the things that cause you anxiety and vexation and bitter weeping are too much to bear? Who do you turn to? What is implicitly expressed in this text is that Hannah understood the centrality of the Lord. He carries the weight of all things. He is the one with the power to step into any situation. That is a with God life. This is the understanding that Hannah displays. Uh, Several years ago, actually in a sermon up here, I, I once shared how the loudest recurring lesson in my life was the Lord telling me that I don't ask him for help. I was just trying to muscle through things on my own strength and wisdom, and it finally came to a head with an encounter with the Holy Spirit in which he said, you don't ask me for help. I have what you need, what I will freely give to you, and you don't ask me for it. Ask me for it. And that's become a significant growth edge over the last couple of years of my life. Recently, I've been having a similar conversation with the Lord, though the tune is just a little bit different. Because instead of just not asking the Lord about certain things, there are things that I just don't talk to him about, period, at all. Things that I have closed off and just adopted this posture of, we just don't talk about that. Does anybody have that with the Lord? Like, we just don't talk about that. This actually came to a head um, a few months ago as I was journaling, and the Lord speaks to me quite a bit through journaling, the journaling process, because that's where I just work out situations, trials, emotions, all those things in His presence. And I've been working through a lot of issues with vulnerability, and I was, I was writing through some of these experiences. I could feel the Lord say, you don't tell me things. And I was like, I, I do. I tell you all kinds of things. But he said, you don't tell me all of the things. And I want to hear about all of it. And that's the journey. Everything, every detail, every struggle, every delight, every fear, every frustration, he is in all of it. And when I acknowledge that, When I ask him for help, when I tell him everything, I am showing him that he is the center of my life, that I trust him with everything. That's what Hannah does in 1 Samuel 1. She shows us an example of what it looks like to see the Lord as center in life. She gives him everything and she leaves it there. So let's pick up the story in verse 19. So Hannah prays to the Lord, 
She tells Eli the priest when he asks her if she's drunk, she's like, no, I'm just like deeply grieved. Thank you for noticing. And he, he listens to her and he blesses her as, he, as she goes. And he says, may the, Lord, may the Lord answer your prayers. So verse 19 says, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is an example of what it means to live a with God life. But I want to take a look at what happens when that is not the case. So we're going to jump forward to chapter 2. We're moving through a lot of text today. I'm not sorry about that. Um, you guys should know that by now. This is chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, we've heard them mentioned before in chapter 1, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. It's also what you want in priests. <laughs> it just continues to paint the bleak picture of what we're dealing with at this point in the narrative. The people who should know the Lord, who should be pointing other people and leading other people to the Lord, don't know him. He doesn't hold that weight, that centrality. He doesn't hold that gravity in their lives. Verses 13 through 16 highlight their sin. These guys steal from people. They, they take the best portions of the offering. They sleep with the women who are performing duties around the tabernacle. Verse 17 tells us that their sin was great in the eyes of the Lord. The issue here is that they know who the Lord is. They don't care. They don't truly know him. He's a token. He's a symbol. And what they gain from serving him is the authority that they get in their own eyes. It's better. And I want to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. When the idea of our authority, our ability to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong is better in our own eyes than the authority of the Lord. Now, Eli, their father, is not oblivious to this. The text tells us that he hears the reports of what's going on. And when he talks to them, he basically says, my sons, this is very bad. And they, like, they ignore him because who wouldn't? They just go on doing what they want to do. So let's pick this up in verse 25. This is chapter 2, verse 25. So Eli comes to them and he's like saying, this is bad. Verse 25 says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. But listen, verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. So, Eli, so Hophni and Phinehas, their sin, their lack of honor for the Lord, their pride and their own authority has its consequences, and that's death. But look at how that's juxtaposed against what is said about Samuel. Hannah, his mother, did what she said she was going to do. And when he was weaned at the age of three, she gave him over to the temple for service. He's been growing up and serving the Lord in the tabernacle ever since. Growing in favor with the Lord. Growing in favor with the people around him. Verse 26 is a clue that there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to. And this picks up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the young man, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord under Eli. 
and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. There are some very important clues here that the author gives us that we need to pay attention to. So Eli is old, and his eyesight is weak, physically, but we also know from chapters 1 and 2 that his eyesight is weak spiritually. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. It was a physical thing in the tabernacle. It would have been burning through the night. It had not gone out, but the lamp of God becomes a symbol of hope that is picked up later on in the biblical text. This happens in 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. The lamp of God is hope. So yeah, Eli is old and his eyesight is bad. The lamp of God would have been burning all night in the tabernacle, but that's not all that the author is telling us. The spiritual leadership in Israel is not strong. That's not a secret. But neither is it the end either. There's still hope. The lamp of God has not gone out. The Lord is about to do something new here. And this is where we get the story of Samuel encountering the Lord for the first time. And it's a pretty well-known story. We're not going to read through it. But to summarize, it's where the Lord calls to Samuel in the middle of the night. Um, And Samuel does not yet know the Lord. So he assumes that it's Eli. And he runs to where Eli is sleeping. And he wakes him up. He's like, what do you want? So Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And this happens three times. On the third time, Eli recognizes, oh, maybe the Lord is trying to talk to you. And he tells him, if this happens again, here's what you say to the Lord. You say, speak, your servant hears. And that's exactly what happens. The Lord comes to Samuel a fourth time, and Samuel responds with, speak, I'm listening. In a desolate situation, we see Samuel respond to the weightiness of the Lord. And from that point forward, he actively chooses a with God life. We all get to a place in our lives where we have to choose for ourselves. Am I going to live a with God life or am I going to choose my own authority? And side note, um, there are times when it's neither. We don't fully trust God's authority. We don't fully trust our own authority. So we hand over the authority of our lives to other things, to other people, political figures, pundits, TikTok influencers, spiritual leaders, other people who can tell me how and what to think, what to trust in. But anything, anything that has you placing your trust in something or someone other than the Lord still leads to the exact same problem. I don't want the Lord's authority. We have to choose. And here's the thing. I grew up in church. I don't remember a time where I did not know who Jesus was. But there came a place in my life where I had to choose. Am I going to live a with God life or am I going to put my trust in myself or the world around me? My parents could not do that for me. My pastors, my leaders could not do that for me. We all have to make that choice, all of us. Samuel made that choice. So let's pick this up in verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet 
of the Lord. One thing we see here that I could not help but get stuck on was the phrase, the Lord was with him. Because listen to this. When we allow God to take the throne at the center of our lives, when we ascribe to him the weightiness that he is due, it isn't just a with God life. It is a God with us life. We see that difference in Samuel. We saw that with Hannah. Samuel has an interesting role. He's raised as a priest. He's called into prophetic office. He's going to serve as God's chosen agent of change. He functions as a judge. He's all of these things. But remember, we're moving into something new and different. In Samuel, the person and the book is the hinge in the story. So I want to take a quick moment to talk about the Old Testament role of prophet. Because these guys weren't simply people who told the future or proclaimed doom and punishment. Prophets were the mouthpieces of the Lord. These guys were the covenant mediators. You guys love to give me a hard time about loving the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which I will never be ashamed of. But Deuteronomy casts a long shadow over the, the rest of the Old Testament. The stipulations of the covenant are spelled out there. The blessings of being faithful to the Lord and keeping their side of the covenant. The consequences for their unfaithfulness in keeping the covenant. It's all spelled out. So when the prophets roll up on the scene, what they're saying isn't new. It should not be new to the people who are hearing it. They're not making this stuff up. It's not surprise information. They're reminding the people of the covenant that they made with the Lord. They are restating blessings and consequences as they call the people back to faithfulness to Yahweh. And that's exactly what Sam, Samuel does. That is his role as priest, prophet, and judge. So how does this go? We're going to jump forward to chapter 7. I told you we're covering a lot of text. But you guys are doing great. You're doing great. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, that's Deuteronomy language, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve only him. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. He calls the people back into covenant faithfulness with the Lord, and they do it. It's far from perfect, but Samuel establishes a circuit where he moves throughout Israel, serving as a prophet and a judge. But we're moving towards something. And this is actually where we're going to plant ourselves for the rest of the day because it's going to set us up well for next week and the weeks moving forward. This is Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after, after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. We all have to choose. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. He's probably 60. 
and your sons, I mean, that's cold. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give, to, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, this is off-putting to Samuel because he thinks it's a statement against his leadership. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. That's not actually what's been happening through this whole story at all. And the Lord tells him that. This is not about you, he says. This is about me. They are rejecting me as their king. And we said earlier that we've been moving toward kingship. The text has been telling us repeatedly, a king is coming. And to understand what is actually happening in 1 Samuel 8, we need to understand a little bit about kingship in the ancient Near East. So it was the role of the king to care for the gods. The king provided shelter. The king provided food. The king provided what was necessary for the well-being of the gods. And in return, because he had done these things to take care of them, the gods were somewhat indebted to him. He would have a measure of control, a bargaining chip over the gods. They would be more inclined to do as he said because he took care of them. Yahweh's idea of kingship is quite the opposite. The king would be his vassal. The king would be his servant, his representation to the people. We see this in Psalm 2, 110, 146, we see this in Daniel 4. The Lord does not oppose the idea of a king. He is the king. And when the elders of Israel ask for a king, their idea was to be like the other nations. They don't want a king appointed by Yahweh as a servant of Yahweh. They want a king who can control Yahweh. They're rejecting the Lord's authority in favor of being like the nations around them. They want him under their authority. We talked about this earlier, the idea of rejecting Yahweh's authority because we want to decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong. This has been the problem since Genesis chapter 3. I don't want the Lord's authority. I want my own authority. It's been present this whole time. But this is the picture that the book of Samuel picks up. This is the question we're going to see presented time and time again. Is the Lord king? Is the Lord central? Is he being ascribed the weightiness due to him because of his nature? Through the rest of the text, we're going to see the comparison of the people who see him as king, the people who choose the with God life compared to those who do not, those who would choose their own authority over the authority of the Lord. This whole book, this whole story from start to finish is a story about Yahweh as king. It begins in a throne room, it ends in a throne room. And here's a secret. You, me, we're not the ones on the throne. 
Hannah recognized that. Samuel recognized that. David will recognize that. The prophets who come later will recognize that. The with God life recognizes it isn't my kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's not my authority. It's his authority. It will always be his authority. And you guys, that's better. It's better. It's so much better than anything we could contrive on our own. And it is the greatest lie we will ever believe if we think it could ever be otherwise. The reality is, when we acknowledge that the Lord is king, that this is his kingdom, he invites us into that kingdom, that reality, what he has, he offers us. The with God life becomes the God with us life. Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. The Holy Spirit is the seal, God in us. I will say this until I die. I don't care if this is the only thing you ever remember me saying to you. When you say the Lord is king, when you choose the with God life, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you and with you as a seal. Do you live like that? Do you live like that? When you wake up in the morning, do you think about the fact that the greatest thing that has ever happened on this earth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that power is present with you and in you? Holy buckets. What would happen if we actually started living that way? God with us. God in us. Worship team, you guys can come back up. The question I have for you is simple. Are you living a with God life? That's the question this book asks over and over and over from start to finish. Are you living a with God life? Or are you choosing your own authority? your own autonomy. If there is anything, any other thing, sitting on the throne at the center of your life, you, your spouse, your job, your money, your children, your moral principles, your politics, any other thing that you believe has greater power or authority over the authority of the Lord, it is never too late to remove that thing, turn to the Lord and say, you are king. I am not. And you do that every day. We do that every day. That's choosing the with God life. Every hour, every moment, every time that temptation rises up to trust yourself over trusting the Lord, every time, this is your kingdom, it's not my kingdom. And maybe it's along the same lines as what I shared earlier that the Lord has been teaching me. Maybe it's learning to trust him with everything, by telling him everything, by asking him for help with everything. Maybe it's learning to show your dependence upon him by asking for help, by asking for that power of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord for help. Ask him to show you the places in your heart and life where he has not been centered because I'm sure it's there. We have to keep doing the digging, that rooting out, 
finding those places where he is not king. And then we ask him to become king of those places. There is one king. There will only ever be one king. Will you live your life with him at the center? Will you choose the with God life? I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. We're going to move into a song. It's literally a prayer. And it is all about how the Lord is king. So I would encourage you to take this time, use this song as a moment to deal with your heart. As you're asking yourself the question, who is king? Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word for the reality that a with God life is a God with us life. The reality that there is no power greater than your power. There is no authority greater than your authority. And you don't withhold it from us. You give it to us freely. Lord, help us to see that gift. Help us to choose your kingdom over and over and over and over as you root out the places in our lives where you aren't king, that we hold back from you, that we keep secret from you. Thank you that you deal with us gently. Thank you that you love us kindly. We just ask that your Holy Spirit would be present right now and do the work. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.